0: Hello, and welcome to In a Perfect Policy, hosted by UW-Madison's Catalysts for Science Policy. At CASP, we work to advocate for science-based policy, engage lawmakers in their policymaking process, and promote science outreach within the community. My name is Sarah Alexander, your host for today's episode. Today we're going to listen in on a science policy panel that was hosted by CASP at the Adult Swim Science Fair, held on July 9, 2020, via Zoom. We wanted to host the Science Fair to try to bridge the gaps between our research, public opinion, and public policy. Throughout the evening, we aimed to educate both policymakers and community members on the scientific method and how it is applied to both local and global issues. The overall goal of the Science Fair was to create an environment for citizens and lawmakers alike to explore scientific topics that affect Wisconsinites and to spark discussions about local, national, and even global issues. Initially set for late March, as part of the Madison Children's Museum's monthly series, the in-person event was sidelined due to the COVID pandemic, so CAS pivoted to a virtual event that was held on July 9th. The virtual event had many of the same components as the in-person, such as at-home do-it-yourself science, science trivia sessions, and a panel of science policy experts. Their discussion centered on leveraging science to inform evidence-based policy on controversial issues. We'll be sharing that panel discussion with you for this episode. The panel consisted of Joe Handelsman and Kate Austin Stanford. Dr. Handelsman is a professor of plant pathology and director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She has previously served as Barack Obama's science advisor, wrote a book on mentoring, and published research on gender disparities in hiring and academia. She also started an international citizen science project called Tiny Earth, where high schoolers collect local microbes to find new antibiotics. Kate Austin Stanford is the Director of Operations at Public Health for Madison and Dane County, where she aims to incorporate health and racial equity into agency operations. She often speaks about the challenges of working for a merged city-county agency, and public health surveillance related to COVID. She has previously worked as a consultant where she worked on What Works for Health, an initiative that ranked health policies based on experimental outcomes in the science literature. She also worked on the Evidence-Based Health Policy Project, which analyzed health policy for county health rankings to inform elected officials on the impact of their health policies on the community. Her work has focused on equity in pediatric healthcare services. We asked each panelist to begin by introducing themselves a bit more to all of our listeners, beginning with Dr. Handelsman.
1: Well, thanks everybody for joining us. It's really great to see so many people or know of so many people, since we can't really see you, uh, engaged in a discussion of science policy on a, on a rainy Thursday night, so we really appreciate this. My background is in microbiology. I study, I, I'm a researcher, and I, my lab studies interactions of bacteria with plant roots and uh, in soil and the role that antibiotics play in the lives of bacteria in the real world outside as in the soil. I run the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery as uh, Laura said, uh, but before I came uh, back to Wisconsin, I was a uh, science advisor for President Obama in the White House And so I was the head of the science division of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. uh, And I worked with the president and the large staff in OSTP on uh, all the the whole range of science issues. Uh, My division specialized in uh, science education, space science, agriculture, medicine, public health, and a whole variety of other things. So um, that's all I'll tell you now and we can talk more later about the policy process I was engaged
2: in. Great, thanks. Um, and I'm Kate Austin Stanford. Um, really happy to be here with you today. Thank you so much for the invite. Thanks everyone for being here for this conversation. It's, it's a really important one and it's a timely one. And so I'm hopeful that it will be valuable to you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, so currently I am the Director of Operations for Public Health Madison Dane County. We are your local city, co- county public health department. And so we sit between kind of two entities of local government. Um, We are the only department locally that is structured this way in this merged fashion. So the policy that we're talking about and that we're working with both happens with Um, county government and the county board and with the city government and the city council here in Madison. So my role day-to-day in this in this position is to lead the operations division. It is both kind of the operational engine of the agency so it's really that kind of nuts and bolts and the budget and um, the administration components but also our strategic engine and so really thinking about our long-term planning um, how do we Uh, set up a performance management system to make sure that we are constantly improving how we deliver our services, um, how we inform our um, implementation of local policy. And so that's kind of what I do day to day in kind of the normal world. We are in COVID-19 world right now. So we're we're a department of about 150 permanent staff. And I would say at this time, about 90% of our staff are supporting our COVID response efforts. So when this response started for us back in January, if we remember back then, it kind of feels like um, a different world at this point. Um, I stepped in as the incident commander of our response. Um, we're the lead agency um, in this response locally. And back then when we had the only the 12th case in the nation, and obviously things have changed a lot since then. Um, I do wanna make a quick disclaimer, this spring I became a new mom. So I took some time away for maternity leave. So if you think you hear a baby, you probably do, <laughs> but I'm um, back now at work, working in a planning and finance role as we map our response and recovery efforts. Um, and I was really drawn to the field of public health more broadly because I just was really taken by the discipline and looking at the health of populations and really looking at those upstream factors that can influence health outcomes. So thinking about housing, transportation, built environment, and all the uh, education, employment, all all of those um, determinants of health that we know are so important and we know that those policy systems and environmental changes really can make a huge difference for the health of our communities.
3: For the first question, to get everyone who's listening in familiar with what science-based policy looks like locally, what are some recent science-based policies in Madison or Wisconsin that either impact your work or impact the people that you serve? Uh, and we'll start with Kate
2: for this question. Great. So um, we'll talk about more of the, the COVID response work later on. Um, but outside of that, that response work, our department nearly all of the work, all of you know the work is rooted in science, right? And it's a lot of the work we do is implementing policy and imp- implementing that evidence-based policy. So some examples of what we were working on before. Um, we kind of turned our attentions to the coronavirus response. Um, We received, you know, at the beginning of this year, some additional funding for lead mitigation in homes in in Madison and Dane County, just as a real concrete example um, of what that looks like locally, Um, working on, there was just the policy that raised the age to buy tobacco products from 18 to 21. So that's kind of the field that we're working in. And additionally, one of the big topics that was um, at the top of our minds and our work was PFAS. And so this is talking about those per- and uh, polyfluoroalkyl substances. Those were kind of compounds that, that are, were produced from 1940 to 2000-ish with peak production in 1970s through 2000. And it's found that they're found in many firefighting foams, oils, and stain and grease blockers. Um, and so we know that those compounds are showing up in our local water systems. And so we were working really closely with the state um, and with community partners and community advocates to uh, use the, the, the building knowledge base um, to change some policy. And so one concrete example of that is, has been updated guidance around fish consumption in our local lakes um that came through in coordination with the state so we're doing a lot of the communication and making sure that that information is getting out to the folks who you know we do have communities in in Madison and Dane County that do rely on 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 fishing um, as a a a food source Um, so making sure that the the new guidance the updated guidance is translated that it's in areas that folks can see and that it's it's as um, in plain language as possible when we're talking about some of these complex topics.
0: Cool, and Joe.
1: Well, I can't uh, really get off the topic of COVID-19, so my answer certainly won't be as interesting as Kate's. I think the the local county and city guidance requirements on uh, gathering in uh, groups of certain numbers and wearing masks in public had a tremendous effect on uh, the world that I live in because uh, my goal right now, besides keeping my family safe, is keeping my students safe in my lab. (laughs) Everything that goes on around us, of course, affects the probability that any one of them will come down with coronavirus. So it's really important to us that um, the the regulations have been developed. And the one that I was really pleased to hear about today was the requirement uh, to wear masks on buses because one of my students has noticed that she's often the only person on the bus wearing a mask, and she's been really pretty nervous about that. So um, that's really good news for us.
3: All right, I wanna ask you uh, both about the process for integrating science into policymaking. Uh, so in your opinion, how do people do it well and what challenges exist? And if you can speak to a role that you've played in this.
1: Uh, and Joe, if you wanna start. Well, when I was in the White House, uh, you can imagine we covered a, a quite a range of policies and no one person could be an expert in all of those areas. And uh, in fact, none of us were experts really in any of the areas because the areas were so broad. And so even when, a, a, for example, a plant pathology problem came across my desk, I still didn't feel that I had all the facts and the current facts. So I needed to talk to people out in the field and I think the most important thing that President Obama uh, really guided us toward and was, it was definitely a, a policy of our office was you go and you find the experts um, in the field, wherever they are, whoever they are, and you pump them for as much information as you can so that you can make a uh, good policy that's based on really good advice that is solid science. So I found myself on the phone with scientists all over the country, in fact, all over the world. Um, Depending upon the issue, I would find experts or my staff would find experts. And uh, it was really quite remarkable how the scientific community was willing to give us little short courses for, you know, like a two-hour tutorial on uh, a given virus. You know, while I was in the White House, we had the Ebola epidemic, we had the Zika virus epidemic, uh, we had a corn stripe virus, it was quite a time for uh, viral disease. And so I spent a lot of time talking to virologists and epidemiologists and people who were experts in uh, all the areas that I needed to cover. So to me, that was the essence of good policy, was using the experts. And unfortunately, in many settings, uh, we see um, uh, people assuming that they know answers without actually consulting experts. And so dependence on experts to me is the, the core. Yeah,
2: I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think for policymakers to be able to uh, be humble enough to listen, um, to listen to those experts, um, and to also know that our knowledge base and our you know, and science across fields is ever-changing, right? And so to to be willing to change course if needed, if the science requires it, I think that is really important to be able um, to do this well, to not um, be tied to an approach or a policy simply because that's how it's always been done, but to be able to um, to adapt and change. Prior to my role, my current role at public health, um, I worked, um, it was in DC and working um, at the federal level um, with a consulting firm, but working with the Veterans Health Administration, military military health service. And so to have, you know, those are truly enormous organizations with very, very wide reach. and the contrast that I kind of find between the, that level and working here at the local level now um, is just the the speed, um, kind of the the possibility for change. It just t- it takes a lot. It takes a longer time when that scope and the um, the agency you're working within is just that much larger, right? And at the local level, we're the closest folks to constituents. We need to react quickly to be able to address concerns in our communities, and so we need to both recognize that, kind of address that need to react, but also know that the science doesn't always quite move as fast as um, public opinion does. So it's a really it's a balancing act, um, particularly here at the local level. And also in our work in public health, some of the policy fixes um, that the pol- that the public asks for, um, and demands of us as a department as a local as a local agency is sometimes outside of our locus of control, so really to be communicating with with our partners and really understanding where we have the power and opportunity to make change and then where we can't, where it's kind of outside of our locus of control to advocate um, and push for the the experts that need to be in the room to to move to move the conversation forward at different levels
3: so A follow-up question to that, and you both spoke to it a little bit, talking about finding the expert, uh, having policymakers be humble enough, but what do you think is a successful way to interact with policymakers who don't have their own science advisors? And this could be interacting either as yourself or as an expert or as a constituent. Uh, Joe, if you want to go first
1: one of the things that surprised me uh, perhaps the most in my time in Washington was how accessible public policymakers are. And most of them consider themselves public servants and they make themselves quite available to the public and they want to hear from the public. So for example, in my office, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, we'd sort of had a general policy that anybody who wanted to could come in and talk to us at least once. And we might not invite them back, but we would at least hear from them once. And we heard the most amazing diversity of science from those people who came in and took advantage of that. But my sense was that not everyone knows that. I certainly didn't know that you could just, you know, set up an appointment at the White House and tell the science advisors what you think. And if there aren't science advisors, there are other people, of course, who are interested in hearing the public's views. And so I, I think just getting that word out that in most administrations, the White House is pretty accessible and the Hill, the you know, Congress is also very accessible. And often people think that by talking to aides they're, they're of, of congressmen, congresspeople and senators, they're being shunted to someone who doesn't really have power turns out, as I discovered, the aides are the ones that really have the power to bring issues to the primaries, the the senators and congresspeople. And so those are the people to access. And so going in and talking to an aide and, you know, who may give you a lot more time than the principal would, and you can really brief them deeply on the issue and they may very well not have any scientific knowledge. That's, that's a situation where you're very unlikely to find uh, scientists. That can be incredibly powerful.
2: And I think a lot of that exists at the local level, too, just those opportunities for input and opportunities for engagement. And really, you know, both kind of taking, if you're interested and want to move local decision makers on these issues, to do that research and to reach out and ask questions about can, which committee do I need to be at to provide co- public comment? Um, who are the folks that staff the different agencies within your local government, with your state government, and how to connect to them? And so I think, um, Joe, you're absolutely right in that most folks are in the uh, field of public service to do just that, right? And to listen um, and to make themselves available. And it really makes a difference. You know, if we get there's a lot of groups that kind of organize individuals locally, um, as well as on the state and and national level to provide kind of a coordinated approach to push and advocate for a specific issue. Um, So if you, I mean, that's an avenue to pursue if you're just an individual. I do wanna highlight um, two uh, resources um, that are available to decision makers. Um, and that you can, as a as an individual, can explore and figure out how to get connected to. These are both here in Wisconsin. So first is a program called What Works for Health, and that is out of the County Health Rankings and Roadmaps program at the university and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, and so this initiative is, it, it looks at policies and programs and interventions that address gaps across across the health factors right to address all those social determinants of health and what what works for health does is really combs the research looks at the most current randomized controlled trials pre-post studies like all of the different um, uh, levels of rigor of of the scientific evidence base um, for these policies and ranks them in terms of their um, effective effectiveness to make change and so As um, someone in local government, um, this is a really um, useful tool to be able to um, quickly go somewhere where you don't have the time to do that deep, deep dive into the research to have that already synthesized um, and a recommendation put forward is really helpful. Um, So if there's, if there's policies that you are advocating for and a resource like that exists that has already kind of synthesized that information and put it in a nice package for your elected officials, um, definitely take advantage of that. And if you'll indulge me, I want to share one more uh, resource. It's the Evidence-Based Health Policy Project, which is a partnership, again, between the UW Population Health Institute and the La Follette School of Public Affairs at UW. And so this goal is, again, to provide policymakers, and this is primarily at the state capitol, with timely high quality information and the latest science to allow for evidence-based decision-making. And so this group works really hard to um, navigate politically polarized waters and to show up with that evidence base um, so that folks from both parties come to the table and really listen to um, the current you know, the latest and the greatest and and those experts. And it's really, they have open forums. Um, Prior to to COVID, they were held, um, I think it was quarterly just about on lots of different topics. So if you find kind of your area of expertise or your area of passion and interest, um, you're able to go and attend those events um, and also refer your elected officials to this resource, um, which is a really great one, well-vetted, well-researched for evidence-based policymaking.
3: Great, thanks for those resources. You each have policy experience at different levels of government, um, and obviously different structures exist at each level. We've spoken to it a little bit, but what factors do you think need to be considered when you're developing a local science-based policy versus a national science-based policy?
2: That's a great question. I will say I'll just jump in really quick um, to just to reiterate a point that I made earlier. Um, it's really to think about um, for us thinking about what we can, what we have the purview over, what's in our control as a local as a local entity. Um, some of the um, areas where we'd like to make stronger science-based policy, we're um, preempted by the state from doing so, and so really to kind of do your research, um, work with your local counterparts and local organizations. A lot of the local organizations are really skilled at being able to target the appropriate level um, of government because a lot of that kind of true foundational change and mandates can happen at that higher level where, and then it trickles down for implementation to the locals. And so really being thoughtful um, and strategic about where you are asking what you're asking for and whether it's in with that entity's area and scope of of work and control
1: i think uh all levels of political intervention or policy intervention benefit from having experts in policy and so if you're a scientist trying to inject science into the policy making it really helps to have a liaison who knows the, exactly what kate was saying in terms of the level at which you might enter Uh, and also how to enter and who, who to talk to. For the university, for example, when we want to affect policy in Washington, we have experts in Washington who represent the university and can make that case or bring a representative of the university who's an expert in the topic to the right offices. And most universities have that kind of linkage. And that really helps because those people are around the policymakers all the time So they know them, they know who is interested in what issues, and they know the route to get you in and and the scientist doesn't have to worry about that part of it.
3: Okay, to move on in the science policy topics, uh, current topics, effective policy is inclusive of diverse voices. Uh, So how do we engage the whole community to discuss hard topics that are maybe partisan and questions that really matter? And then what is needed to take those results and direct it into an inclusive and representative policy? It's kind of a long question, but how do we engage all the voices? And then how do we enact policy that helps voice at all the voices? Uh, Kate, maybe you wanna to speak to that first since you've been talking about upstream factors.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um... So, a couple kind of initial thoughts. Um, I think first of all, as we're thinking about and really being intentional about including voices in the process, um, as government officials, we need to acknowledge that the current state of our society, the inequities that we see, in health, in in health outcomes, in educational outcomes, really across the board, are um, didn't happen by accident, right? Like those were policy decisions that were made, despite you know milestone civil rights laws to maintain those racial inequities. And so I think being honest with community, and and acknowledging that, owning that, really allows for a basis of trust to be developed with community members and populations that have historically had really, really negative and harmful interactions with government. And so that is really key to moving us in a different direction. And so as local government, I think that we are uniquely situated um, to really examine and transform policies and practices, how those policies are implemented on a day-to-day basis towards racial equity And a component of that when we're talking about science is to be willing to open, kind of broaden our our view, broaden broaden our scope to really treasure and value lived experience in addition to what we know to be true about science. Um, A lot of the scientific, a lot of the studies that we've done or that have been done uh, related to um, the implementation of different policies or just the science base has not, and the research base has not always been inclusive of a diverse um, set of experiences and voices, right? And so if only folks' experiences were studied within a trial and we're basing our decisions and policy making on that study, we're still going to continue the inequities that we see. And so if we are more inclusive and broaden our understanding around how we shape policy as it relates to science to bring in that evidence, but to also include lived experience and voice from the community that's gonna get us to, that's a good, good start to get us to a different place. Um, and lastly, I'll say that both the city and the county um, have invested significant time and resources into um, equity work and us as a health department in health equity work. And there are a set of toolkits, particularly on the city of Madison side that allow us to do an equity analysis on policies as they come forward. So it is bringing folks to the table upfront as you're building and crafting policy to talk about who would be disproportionately impacted by the implementation of this policy and, and how can we mitigate some of those things up front? So we're not learning years down the line that this, this policy that we implemented, we thought it was this great idea. You know, it's going to really transform one area of our, of our community to learn down the line that it just perpetuated the inequities. Let's have those conversations up front. Let's have the people, right people at the table from the get-go to shape what that policy really looks like um, in order to avoid unnecessary harm.
1: At the federal level, there was a fairly well-established process in the Obama administration. And I don't know if this carries into other administrations before or after. But when we wanted to get public input, which was always on essentially every policy, we would sometimes have meetings that involved inviting people. So we would have 20 to 70 scientists and citizens come in and talk about an issue and we would bring in lots of different perspectives on the science and as Kate called it, the lived experience. Um, and then we would begin to draft a policy after consultation with the community. And then once we had a draft policy, it would be placed on the, in the federal register, which is one of the ways the federal government uses to get feedback. And the policy is posted in the federal register, it's openly accessible there's a period uh, for comment, and during that period, it's usually 60 days or more. Uh, anybody can write in comments about the policy and suggest changes. And I have to say, we got some of our best ideas from the Federal Register process. I thought, oh, we're just going to get you know, wild comments from people who don't know anything. And it turned out we got lots of comments from a diversity of people including some incredible experts who had ideas that we hadn't thought of that shaped policy. So I found that to be one of the most exciting parts of policymaking was really drawing in that that broad audience. But I think to be truly inclusive, you have to work at it. And health areas are, I think, a really good example. And the the policy that I worked on was uh, President Obama's Precision Medicine Initiative, which, if you've heard of the All of Us initiative at Wisconsin, uh, which involves getting a cohort of people and taking lots of information on their genomes and their metabolomes and all sorts of other measurements, and then trying to use this massive database to find relationships in health that we haven't seen before. That was actually a total of a million people And so Madison is one of the the nodes of that process and has a a cohort to contribute to the million. But when we first introduced the Precision Medicine Initiative, one of the things that we knew we needed to work on was getting minority populations engaged in developing the policy and ultimately in engaging in these studies like the, the million person cohort, or we were gonna be repeating history in terms of just leaving entire segments of society out. And of course, because of historical abuses by the health professions toward particular groups, particularly blacks and um, Indians uh, on reservations who were treated just horribly in experimentation, there's a lot of residual hostility there. And so we, again, used the concept of a liaison. And we found people in the communities who believed in scientific research and recognized that the past may be pretty egregious, and there are some pretty horrible examples of the way minority populations were misused. But if we continue to shun the the scientific community uh, from these communities, then the data from these communities won't be incorporated into future research and that will be left out of policy. So for example, we reached into the African-American community through the faith-based community. And I remember one particular uh, pastor's wife that we worked with in Harlem, who had worked for years on convincing her parishioners that working with Columbia University, which is right in their midst, on medical research was absolutely critical. She, you know, she would just say outright to them, you can stay on your high horse and bring up Tuskegee and all the other examples of the terrible things that have been done to African-Americans by the medical establishment, and then you're gonna be left out of the future. Or you can get off your horse and get involved and you can have your genes and your health issues included. So I found that working from within the communities was the most important uh, element. And the same with Native American communities and, and Hispanic communities, whether it's a language issue or just a trust issue, having somebody from within the community um, translate, essentially, uh, is, is so critical.
3: So to, to come to the elephant in the room that we haven't talked about yet, there so 19. I have a couple of questions about COVID-19. I think we could go on all night. But to start, what are some ways you know government officials and scientists are, or experts, are collaborating to address the pandemic?
2: Yeah, so this is, um, as we know, it's a fluid situation. It's a situation with evolving science. And so one of the primary ways that this you know collaboration between government government officials and scientists are have is happening is that as the evidence base grows as we learn more about this virus the guidance changes necessarily in response to that. So you'll see at the local level here in Madison and Joe you spoke to this earlier about the masking policy that or the mask the order the emergency order requiring masks in um, indoors that was a response to um, what we've learned um, over the course of of this response. And there is there is really significant uh, collaboration happening across tiers of government. One example from kind of way back when, when we were getting started in, in the response in that kind of first case in Madison, if you, if you remember back then, um, the CDC actually deployed a GO team to Madison, Wisconsin, to work here with the local health department, also in collaboration with the state. Um, that GO team was comprised of epidemiologists and researchers who both were teaching our team, our local team, how to conduct that COVID-19 testing. but And they were sharing the latest information, what they were learning um, through the CDC, through their international networks, the state, and also to set up ways to capture information so we, we could learn from, because this was one of the earliest cases, how we could learn from this individual who had tested positive coronavirus what well, we could learn about the virus moving forward. And so it was kind of twofold in, in collaborating in the response and also understanding that we need to be actively researching in this area as we move forward um, because it is this new and novel virus.
1: I think we've all seen the numerous ways that, for example, um, Tony Fauci, uh, the National Institutes of Health, or the National Institute of it, Allergy and Infectious Disease, and several others have had a voice at the federal level. Um, the head of CDC is another one. Occasionally we hear from FDA. And I think those have been extremely important in bringing the science into uh, of coronavirus into policymaking. They haven't always been successful in um, getting the policy to adhere to the science. Uh, and I know that's been you know just an ongoing conflict, but I think we have Heard how that can be done and whether it's successful or not is something to be seen.
3: And how do you think we're doing at communicating this evidence based health to the public? I feel like Kate, you can speak to that.
2: Yes, this is something we talk about each day, right each and every day um, at the local level. we are working with community organizations to make sure and this kind of speaks to some of what um, Joe was um, referencing in the, in your in her earlier answer um, working with organizations to make sure that we're communicating messages in plain language as best we can, making that language accessible not only just in terms of kind of d de- complicating or just getting like the jargon out of the out of the messaging, but also making sure it's available in different languages spoken within each community. So for us in Madison and Dane County, that's making sure all of our messaging is in English and Spanish and Hmong and also making sure those messages are culturally relevant. So, and that is really where we lean on our community partners and where the work that we've done in building relationship is paying off and that we're still working in building trust and relationship with, with community organizations to be able to get this messaging out. I think there are two main challenges that we are running up against right now. One, as I mentioned earlier, the science is evolving. It is changing. Um, which means that our messaging um, and our guidance is changing as well, and that creates a lot of confusion for folks. And so to be as clear as possible that we are communicating um, and basing our decisions about what we know to be true at this moment in time, and then just repeating those messages to help them sink in. Um, The second main challenge that we're finding in messaging is that there really is mixed messaging coming from leaders at various levels of our state and, and federal governments. We have folks in positions of power and public trust who and, and authority that are contradicting science. That makes it extremely challenging for the guidance to get through to help folks protect themselves from, from coronavirus so for example something that we've learned locally and also that we've heard from counterpart agencies across the country is that as states and municipalities have opened back up you have a lot of folks who you know will test positive for coronavirus because they've been out at a they've had a family gathering they've been to a bar something like that and particularly for those folks that have have been exposed to the virus in those public places um, after reopening they'll communicate with the contact tracers those folks who are following up with and trying to determine who you've been in contact with if you have um, tested positive for coronavirus they'll tell our contact tracers that you know if a place is open we assumed it was safe to go and so you hear that in kind of some of the uh, states in, in the Sun Belt that are currently experiencing a huge spike in cases like you know we 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 assumed it was safe if things were if things were back, if things were open, it would be safe for us to do, to go out and enjoy what we, what we like to enjoy. So that's been proving really challenging. So we have a couple
3: of questions from the audience. So we're gonna move over to those questions for now. And so first, the audience is interested in how you became interested in science policy and what was one of your biggest challenge
1: or biggest success in your career so far? So, Joe, if you want to start. Um, So I didn't think I was interested in science policy um, when I got a call from the White House saying, President Obama would like you to come to be director of the science division at OSTP. And I, I didn't have to say, now, what's that? I did actually know, but just barely. And I said, I can't even imagine why you invite me to a place that has policy in its name, I don't know anything about policy. And over the series of, of course of a few weeks, they convinced me to consider it, which I, I was not going to consider the position at all uh, at first, convincing me that there are plenty of people in Washington and in the White House who know how to turn ideas into policy, but what they need was science, scientific expertise. And the ideas about what you can do with science and what kinds of policies would make sense. And then others could translate that into um, politically viable uh, options for policy. What I realized only afterwards is that I had been involved in policy in small ways on uh, committees uh, that looked at science education policy, uh, antibiotic policy, uh, reports by the National Academy that I had worked on, uh, on uh, topics like uh, microbiology and metagenomics, that all of those actually fed into policy. Those are the documents that many policymakers use. And they're looking to the scientists for these expert reports and so, getting involved in expert reporting is a, is a very important way of contributing to policy, whether you ever go beyond that or not. So, I discovered I did have an interest in policy, even though I was pretty sure I, I didn't know anything about it.
2: Yeah, and for me, I have always been interested in health sciences. And um, coming up and going to undergrad, I think my mental model of what that looked like was really a clinical care. Setting and so tried, was, was pursuing the, the pre-med track, um, taking those kind of hard sciences courses. Um, and in my studies, I took a class called Global Health and Socioeconomic Development, which was really my first deep dive into the field of public health. And I just, I was really taken by the impact and the importance of policy of systems, of how we set up our society on the health of all of us and, and, and our communities. So that really kind of shifted my understanding in terms of and towards a more of a, a policy focus. I ended up pursuing a master's in public health at the UW um, and also my master's in public affairs. So that policy component to kind of bolster and strengthen my understanding about how to make change to advance Health and address inequities.
3: You have me feeling so inspired between <laughs> you. <laughs> okay, so the next question it gets at international science policy, which is actually something we haven't really covered, but I'm sure that you have your informed opinions. How and why has the U.S. policy not lined up with other countries' policies? And what do you think the international science policy community's response is or should be?
1: Well, I can say from uh, being the United States representative to the and leader of the delegation of the US to many science meetings. So they're the, like science ministers of the G20 or the G7, which I attended both of. There are all sorts of subgroups across the world that make uh, policy agreements among countries, that it used to be that the Uni- United States was seen as the most forceful and potentially important voice. And I remember being just struck when I went to a meeting in Japan, and somebody laid out the problem, and then immediately turned to me and says, said, and what does the United States think? Mm-hmm. And it was quite an experience to be representing the United States, but fortunately I did have the president's policy with me, so I was able to speak to it. But there was enormous respect for the United States and that was really gratifying. President Obama was beloved. I think he was actually even more beloved abroad than he was at home. Um, people would just like run up to you and if they knew you were from the White House and say, oh, what's he like, what's he like? and They'd wanna to touch you just because they you had touched him. And so he, he was quite a celebrity abroad. And so the United States science policy was a celebrity as well. Right now, I think science policy makers are either ignoring the United States or just baffled by our contradictory policies, our complicated, sometimes nonsensical policies that contradict the science. So I think the world is, is kind of shocked by the United mm-hmm. States not carrying its, its load uh, in, in science.
2: Yeah, and I think also it's a, what's happening right now is a demonstration of how powerful some of those other competing factors are in, in influencing decision making. I think sometimes I know when reflecting on my time at the university, kind of in academia, it is really clear. It's like, well, here's the science. Why don't we implement this? It's an easy answer, right? it makes sense. But what, what we come up, what we run up against is all of these other political realities, economic realities that really um, make the implementation of a science-based policy less feasible. And I think Of, as advocates for science policy, we do a disservice to ourselves when we don't take those other realities into consideration when we're forming our arguments. Because if we come to decision decision makers and ask for a a science informed and science based policy to be put into place where they're having, you know, re election pressures in in the back of their head, and we don't articulate our argument addressing what is kind of top of mind for that decision maker, we're not gonna get very far in terms of how we implement the policy. So I think it's a really unfortunate demonstration because it's really consequential of um, of these competing factors that get in the way of us being able to implement science-based policy.
3: We did have a couple of questions on getting involved in policy. One question was, how do we or a person provide direct feedback Uh, to policy, or on policy, and should we focus our efforts on the local or the federal level?
1: The first part is just to reach out to offices, and I talked about this before, going to your local congresspeople and senators if you want to affect at the federal level, and talking to the aides in their office, or writing emails. They all have websites where you can post comments about policy. One of the things that is a little surprising is on most policies, how little feedback our leaders uh, get, at you know the, particularly at the federal level. They just don't hear from very many constituents. So your voice can be very loud just because there are very many other voices there. I can't make a general statement about local versus federal. I think it depends on where you want to have an effect, how much of an effect, and who you want to affect. If you want to affect your community and how it is handling COVID-19, for example, then I think local is makes more sense. If you want to affect climate change policy at an international level, then clearly the federal level makes more sense. Yeah,
2: agreed. It is it is really um, kind of thinking about what your passion is and what you are advocating for. And then exactly as Joe said, to, to kind of target the appropriate Entity kind of level of government that does deal and has decision making authority in that arena.
0: Uh,
3: Okay, so uh, final questions before we finish up this panel discussion. In advance, we asked each panelist uh, to prepare some answers for some take home message questions. And so the two that I wanted to pose to you two are based on your expertise, what is one policy or institutional change that needs to happen right now to move us in a good direction? And then also, as we're living through this pivotal moment in history where racial racial injustice and COVID-19 issues are energizing the public, how do we leverage this energy to start addressing those longstanding
1: problems? I think the first one is easy. I think we need a national and many local policies on wearing masks. Um, It's the one activity that we know will make a difference in contagion of COVID-19. Social distancing is also great, but it's a little harder to legislate. And if everyone wore a mask, the numbers would simply go down. So that would be my one, one policy. I think in every science policy issue that we come up with, we need to immediately be bringing into it the equity issues. And that Mm -hmm. has not always been done. And I think if the public and the the public officials have that responsibility and are constantly reminded of it, that you need to think about this not just from uh, the majority population or your constituents, but what about the people that you don't normally consider in your policy? I think that will become more of a norm. And, and we are at a turning point where I think we can make that
2: happen. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's funding public health. That is the institutional change that that needs to happen um, to get us to a different state. You know, the state of Wisconsin consistently consistently ranks at the bottom of all 50 states in terms of investment in public health per capita. Um, And that needs to change. We have gotten an influx of dollars from the Federal CARES Act to address the immediate need in the COVID response. Those dollars expire on December 31 of 2020. We know that this is gonna be here moving forward. So we need to be able to have some assurances from the federal government that funding can be continued and we can use and have access to uh, additional funds to plan our uh, response and then recovery well into the next year. I think that COVID has shown a bright light on a lot of the vulnerabilities we have as a society. And we're seeing that with the kind of uprisings and the protests as it relates to racial inequities and violence from police. Public health as a discipline works to address the upstream factors, as I mentioned, kind of right as we kicked off, that can move us into a different direction. It, we can we can work on housing. We can look at employment. We can work in at education. And so, with that investment of public health, um, we can move from a reactive place to a more generative place and a more inclusive place. To Seize this energy in this moment. We as government officials need to be authentic and genuine when we show up in relationship with community members. We have a lot of new folks that want to um, Talk to us engage with us. And so we need to listen, be humble and know that trust building takes time, but we need to show up over and over again each day doing the right thing um, to move us toward a more just society.
3: Um, Thank you, Joe and Kate, for taking time to be with us tonight and sharing your expertise as part of this panel. I know I learned a lot. Uh, I know the audience learned a lot, or they wouldn't have asked such good questions. So thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for tuning in to In a Perfect Policy with UW-Madison's Catalysts for Science Policy. We hope you've recognized some of the challenges in using science to craft evidence-based policy, especially on controversial issues, gained an appreciation for how science can help solve critical issues in our community, and are excited to get involved in local policy. For more episodes, please check out casp.wisc.edu podcasts.